John 6, Psalm 69. I'm going to ask you a question that I already know the answer to, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Have you ever felt overwhelmed with life? I say I already know the answer because I understand the human condition. The answer is yes. Have you ever felt like you were just getting hit by one thing after the other, after the other, after the other, to the point where you found yourself struggling to cope just with life? Have you ever felt like circumstances in your life have just completely thrown your life out of order? In those moments, have you felt like maybe you are approaching the limit of what you could handle? Have you ever been there? Psalm 69, that's exactly where David finds himself. And I want you to listen to how he describes his situation. He cries out to God in Psalm 69 and says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. Isn't that remarkable? He feels like he's drowning in water, yet he says, my throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Yahweh. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Yahweh, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and my thirst they gave for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. And to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. 
I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please Yahweh more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For Yahweh hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servant shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Like many Psalms, we see a shift towards the end where David pours out his heart and how he is feeling, but then he reminds himself of his theology, of what he knows about God, preaches to himself, and then in the end, he ends up praising the Lord. But what I want us to notice in Psalm 69 simply is this, that David is suffering greatly, feeling surrounded, absolutely surrounded by his enemies, alienated from his friends and family, and ridiculed by the world. One thing on top of another thing on top of another. And all of this suffering had worked together to make David feel hopeless. He felt overwhelmed. He felt like he was in utter despair. He felt like he was on the brink of collapse. But I want you to notice how... David describes his state and what metaphors he uses. Look in verse 2. He says, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters. The flood sweeps over me. Verse 14, deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Have you ever felt like trouble came into your life like one wave upon another? One wave crashing in and then another wave crashing in. In your suffering, have you ever felt like you were sinking deep into mire or mud? Have you ever felt like circumstances all around you were like raging waves? Have you ever felt so overwhelmed with difficulty that you felt like you were drowning? That's the idea. That's the imagery that David is invoking here. But he's not just using some creative turn of phrase here by talking about floods and raging waters. What David is actually doing is he's tapping into a biblical motif that we see from Genesis all the way to literally from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. All the way back in Genesis, we read that before God brought forth life in order, there existed the deep. The deep. The deep consisted of the chaotic waters, which were yet unrestrained and unordered by God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So right there in the creation account, we see the chaotic deep contrasted with the created order. Before God created, there was the deep. There existed only the deep until God's Spirit moved upon the waters and God said, let there be light. God had to bring light out of darkness into darkness and began to establish order in the midst of chaos. It's not that the deep there in Genesis was evil, but it was unordered. It was without form. It was void. God would not declare it good until after his Holy Spirit moved upon the waters and he brought light into the darkness and he established the boundaries for the waters, bringing order to the chaos. Proverbs 8 speaks of wisdom personified and wisdom says this of herself in Proverbs 8.27. 
It says, when God established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. Saying, when God set the limits of the deep, I was there. Or God says to Job in Job 38, verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. This is wonderful rhetorical questions for those who think they're going to tell God how to operate. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or uh, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors, and said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. The point is this, we begin to see the biblical imagery. The unformed, void, deep, requiring God to bring light into darkness and requiring God to set the boundaries Uh, of its waves. The dry land eventually appeared. God creates. He creates life in the midst of all of this. And then he uh, had, uh, the dry land appears and he creates what he calls Eden, which is a perfect garden. Eden then represents uh, what? Perfect creation. The deep represents disorder, formlessness, uncreation, the lack of life. Eden was the exact opposite. It's the epitome of creation. An ordered garden full of life and order where mankind could live in a worshipful relationship to God. God further then designed that that life and order would spread out from the garden over all the earth. The deep then became a metaphor, a biblical picture, a biblical motif, which meant to represent what? Chaos, disorder, uncreation, in contrast to God's well-ordered good creation. Eventually, it would take on a moral component, and it would include things like sin and evil. So that, in what way? Well, because sin and Satan and evil also seeks to bring destruction or to uncreate all that God has created. And so we see this morph throughout Scripture where the vocabulary of the deep, the abyss, and raging waters, again, seem to reflect all those forces which seek to undo what God has done. All those forces that seek to overwhelm God's good creation and to bring corruption. In Genesis chapter 3, we read that although God created Eden so that life and created order and genuine worship might push outward from Eden and cover all the earth, that's not ultimately what happened. Because the forces of uncreation and chaos and disorder uh, ultimately were pushing into Eden. And there Adam and Eve opened the door. Adam and Eve were confronted by Satan that personification of evil. He tempted them to disobey God, calling into question his goodness and his truthfulness, and they complied. They complied, and then they spiritually died. Although God designed Eden so that order and creation and worship would press out into the world, Adam and Eve allowed the forces of chaos to press in, and from that point on, God's perfect garden paradise would give way to chaotic wilderness. To chaotic wilderness. 
Genesis 3, verse 17. To Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. You're being cast out of the garden, and you're going to be flung into the wilderness. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It was at this point that the entire created order shifted due to sin. Sickness, disease, chaos, disorder, and death would intrude upon God's creation, and they would seek to dominate. The human experience would be one marked by suffering and distress. It's as if that formless void of the deep had prevailed against God's order design. Consequently, all of creation from that point on would long for the day when God's perfect order would be restored. All of God's creation would long for the day where the agents of chaos would finally be defeated. That's what Paul hits on in Romans chapter 8. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed for us, to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was sub- subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now this tells us something about the Christian experience. If you come from some religious tradition telling you that because you're a believer, you can expect just peace and prosperity in this life, I mean, just run, right? Because that's not what the Bible teaches at all. That type of teaching is setting you up for a crisis of faith. According to Romans chapter 8, even us who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even us as believers, there are times where we groan together in pain like one in childbirth, longing for the coming when the chaos and corruption of this life would give way to God's ordered paradise once again. So you experience that, and I experience that. Like David in Psalm 69, sometimes, Lord, I just feel like I'm getting hit over and over and over again, and I feel like the forces of chaos are just about to overwhelm me. This is human experience. This is to be expected. Sin entered the world and has continually worked as a force of destruction. Everywhere God has designed, man, driven by his sinfulness, seeks to distort it. Everywhere God has a law, mankind in his sin seeks to break it. Everywhere God has established order for the good of humanity, mankind in his sin imposes disorder. Sin, Satan, and their effects have wreaked havoc upon God's good creation, like the destructive waves of an ocean might crash in and ravage the earth. And so, as a result, our human experience is such that at times we feel like we're being pummeled by wave after wave of suffering. It's this type of struggling and longing that the psalmist in Psalm 42 uh, was describing. Psalm 42, verse 7, he says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He's just saying, like, it's not just the deep that's rising up and overcoming me, but it's deep calling to deep from one side to the other, wave after wave. That's his experience, too. 
Like the chaotic waters of the deep had risen up and brought chaos in his life. The forces of uncreation wreaking havoc over the order in his life. So, throughout Scripture, we see the forces of danger, evil, chaos, darkness, disorder, often referred to metaphorically as the deep, the abyss, raging waters, the seas, and sometimes that gets morphed into something like wilderness. So David could say in Psalm 18, verse 16, He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of the many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. So now you know, when you read the Psalms, you might be thinking, why are these psalmists always, you know, drowning? Like, stay away from the water, guys. I mean, I'm reading these psalms over and over again. You're always stuck in the water. Well, now you know. Again, Psalm 32. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of the great waters, they shall not reach him. And God himself could assure his people throughout the, uh, through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43. But now, thus says Yahweh, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. Now notice again in Isaiah 43, God doesn't say to his people, you belong to me, therefore you will not face the waters. Therefore, you will not experience the deep. That's not what he says. What he says is, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. That tells us again something about Christian experience. God does not assure us that he will save us from having to pass through trials and difficulties. He doesn't tell us that we're never going to have a time where we feel like we're on the brink of being overwhelmed. He doesn't ever promise that. But what he does promise is that when we face these things, he's there with us. If we're under the impression that trouble won't come, that forces of chaos won't break in upon us, then when it does happen, again, what a crisis of faith. So what promise do we have? We have the promise that full and final deliverance will come. Full and final deliverance from sin and Satan and all of their effects will come. But it's not promised until Jesus Christ ushers in a new heaven and a new earth. So we learn that as human beings, we all share in a mutual human condition. We are all subject to suffering, trials, hardships, and opposition. Ever since the forces of chaos and disorder invaded Eden and Adam submitted to them, we have all become subject to the same. This is the nature of life in this sin-affected world. Although God now is establishing his kingdom, the forces of evil and chaos and darkness and disorder are always at work. It's like the chaotic waters of the deep are always attempting, once again, to sweep away God's good creation. And so after Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? We saw the rise of conflict. Conflict between nature and humans. Conflict from human to human. Conflict between God and man. Even conflict within our own body and soul and mind. And so you and I feel all of this as we seek to live for God's glory in the midst of a sinful world. 
We experience all this when we seek to live for God, not only in the midst of a sinful world, but from within these sinful frames. Sometimes we even come near the brink of feeling entirely overwhelmed, like David. Sometimes we get to that point where we want to cry out and say, Lord, I, it's, it's, I'm in the deep mire. I need to be saved from the waters. Now, at this point, you're thinking, this has not been a very uplifting sermon. We get it. We're all in a, in a sorry state. We're all continually exposed to the forces of evil and chaos and darkness and disorder. We've also learned that those forces are so pervasive and so powerful that Scripture likens them to deep waters, even a catastrophic flood. Now, that's all true, but there is some good news. Multiple times within the Old Testament, the Lord worked through human events in such a way to signal something else about the deep and the abyss and the devastating waters. He would have us know that despite sin, which has ravaged our world, He remains the Creator. He who brought order to the chaos, that creation, is still at work. He who separated the land from the deep and created perfect Eden is still in power, still in control. A few examples that we see in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 6, we find God looking upon the earth and lamenting the fact that mankind has basically allied, uh, aligned themselves with the forces of chaos and evil and corrupted all of, uh, uh, all of creation. Genesis 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Again, mankind aligned themselves with the forces of chaos and wreaked havoc upon God's good creation. Violence, bloodshed, corruption of every sort. Instead of behaving as God's image bearers, bringing the knowledge and worship of Him throughout all the earth, they behave like spawns of the great deep, bringing chaos and destruction all over creation. So what would God do? Well, He'd bring judgment. And how would He do it? He would summon the waters. Rain from above, water from the subterranean springs, and God marshaled a flood. He marshaled a flood. In doing so, he signaled that despite man's greatest efforts to overthrow him, he had sovereign power over the deep. By flooding with water and earth, which man had flooded with destruction, he answered chaos with chaos. Through the flood, he uncreated what he had made, and then he would make it again. So Noah departs from the ark, and he says to Noah, just like he said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. God recreates The Lord was signaling that the forces of chaos were no match for his sovereign might and that he had the power even to turn them upon themselves in judgment. Another one, how about the Exodus? For 430 years, God's people were captive in Egypt, oppressed by Pharaoh. Pharaoh, who becomes that archetype of the proud, rebellious, godless leader. Egypt, which becomes the archetype of the corrupt world system. The Lord sends Moses to lead his people out from Egypt into freedom And of course, you know the rest of the story. After ten plagues, which the Lord poured out upon Egypt, Pharaoh reluctantly lets the people go, immediately regrets his decision, and then pursues God's people. But then Israel, as they fled, suddenly find themselves in an impossible situation. Behind them, there's Pharaoh and his army. 
In front of them is the impassable Red Sea. It's as if they found themselves pressed between two forms of the forces of chaos. Pharaoh and Egypt behind them, the raging sea in front of them. This was the perfect moment, of course, orchestrated by God for God to demonstrate his power over both. So God miraculously, what does he do? He divides the Red Sea. He leads his people through on dry land, and then he drowns Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army in those very waters. Again, he turns the forces of chaos upon themselves and delivers his people. So Moses and God's people sing about this in Exodus 15. It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. By the way, this is an amazing confession, because prior to the Exodus, they really didn't know much about who Yahweh was. So that when Moses met Yahweh at the burning bush, and he says, I am who I am, I am Yahweh, uh, all those actions through the Exodus, all the plagues and everything that he works there, was God's means of revealing to his people who he was. Well, now in Exodus 15, they get it. So they're singing about what they have learned about Yahweh. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in, in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Then down in verse 19, And when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, Yahweh brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The conclusion is clear. God possesses sovereign power even over the forces of chaos. He has the power even to turn those forces in upon themselves. And so Pharaoh and his army, the agents of chaos, being drowned in the water, which metaphorically we understand to represent that same chaos. Well, how about the captivity? We say, wait a second, where's this water in the captivity? There's no flood in the captivity. There's no parting of water in the captivity. So how does God use the captivity of his people to illustrate his power over the forces of chaos? Isaiah 17 says, ah, the thunder of many peoples. This is a description of the Assyrian army. They thunder like the thundering of what? The sea. Oh, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away. Chase like, chase like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror Before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. 
in God's promise through Isaiah that he's going to deliver his people from captivity, what language does he use? He describes the invading army as mighty waters, as many waters, agents of chaos. But ultimately, God has sovereign power even over them. Just like he rebuked the Red Sea at the first exodus, he would rebuke this thundering sea of evil men to prepare for a second exodus. And so, through these and many other events, God established in the minds of his people that he's sovereign. They suffer, yes, you will suffer, but God is sovereign, ultimately over the forces of chaos, just as he brought creative order out of the deep in the beginning, just like he controlled the waters of the flood, just like he divided the Red Sea, so too he maintains sovereign control over the forces of evil and chaos and darkness and disorder in your life and in my life. He has the power to turn back the forces of suffering that threatened to overwhelm us. So, your question to me then, I'm guessing, is, okay, he has the power to do this. So why hasn't he? So why hasn't he? Why am I still suffering? Why do I experience these things as I do? If he's sovereign over the force of evil and chaos and darkness and disorder and has the power to deliver us from them, why hasn't he once and for all vanquished them? Why hasn't he eradicated sin? Why hasn't he defeated Satan? Why hasn't he eliminated suffering? Why hasn't he removed death? Well, the answer to all of that is he has. He has. When God's perfect timing had arrived, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of Mark, we read a very interesting account of Jesus' temptation. In Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the, what? Wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and was with And he was with uh, the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Well, that's interesting. Immediately after Jesus' baptism, he's driven out into the wilderness. And as I said earlier, wilderness can be added to our vocabulary vocabulary of words depicting chaos, depicting death, even uncreation. It's frequently a place of desolation, despair, temptation, and rebellion. The wilderness stands opposed to Eden or the promised land. We could say that when Adam and Eve sinned, they forfeited the perfect garden, and they were what? They were flung out or into wilderness. They really forfeited the Garden of Eden and plunged the whole earth into wilderness. So here, Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan because he would undo, through his righteousness, all that Adam did through his sin. Whereas Adam gave into the forces of chaos forfeiting the perfect garden and ushering in a harsh wilderness. Jesus would resist the forces of chaos from within the wilderness and usher in a new garden, a new Eden. Whereas Adam doubted the word of God and accepted the words of Satan, Jesus would rebuke the words of Satan by quoting the word of God. Whereas Adam gave into Satan's plan for exaltation and therefore found himself humbled, Jesus humbly submitted himself to God and through his humility, found himself exalted. At every point, Jesus came as the greater Adam. 
whereas the first Adam plunged God's perfect creation into chaos, the last Adam would bring forth a perfect new creation from out of chaos. Jesus' entire earthly ministry proved that he was the one sent by the Father to destroy every agent of chaos. He proved he had the power over sickness by healing disease. He proved he had the power over demons by casting them out. He proved he had the power over physical death by raising the dead. He proved he had power over spiritual death by ushering in the new birth. Now, based upon all that we've learned so far, all throughout the Old Testament, regarding God's chosen metaphor for the forces of evil and chaos and darkness and disorder, seeing all that vocabulary of the deep and the raging waters and so on, I wonder, how might God, in the life of Jesus, illustrate for us that Jesus came with sovereign power over these forces? If God has established the metaphor of the deep and the sea and the raging waters as representative of trials and suffering experienced by men, then how do you expect he might reveal this in the earthly ministry of Jesus? Well, last week, so that was like introduction. Last week, we looked at the feeding of 5,000, potentially 20,000. And we looked at the miracle, and then we looked at the interpretation of the miracle. But if you remember, uncharacteristically, un, whatever that word is, uh, it was unlike me. Uh, at one point I said, okay, we'll just skip those verses. And we looked at the miracle, and then we looked at the interpretation of the miracle. But we skipped over about five, six verses. Well, here are those five or six verses. John 6, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king... Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed out about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. When Jesus healed diseases, and when he cast out demons, and when he raised individuals from the dead, again, he was proving that he had the power over the agents of chaos. You can look at it this way. He was storming the gates of the kingdom of Satan, and he was plundering his goods. That's what he was doing. Matthew 12, verse 28, he says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. He's describing himself. He has stormed the household of Satan. He's bound Satan, and now he's plundering all of his goods. He's exercising demons. He's turning back sickness, and he's even raising the dead. Metaphorically, we could say that he had the power over the deep, that he had power over the seas, that he had power over the raging waters. That's what's illustrated in John chapter 6. When Jesus' disciples find themselves on these rough waters, fearing for their lives, and here comes Jesus just walking on the sea. The reality is Jesus has control over it all. The waters that we might fear or that we fear might drown us, are entirely under his feet. That's the idea. It's further reflected in Matthew chapter 8, 
Verse 23, it says, When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? What type of man indeed? He's the sovereign Lord. Psalm 29, Ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings, ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength, ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name, worship Yahweh in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory thunders Yahweh over many waters. And just as glory was to be ascribed to the name of Yahweh in the old, glory is to be ascribed to the name of Jesus in the new. He is the one with all divine power who can speak over the waters. Psalm 29.10 says, Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. Yahweh sits enthroned as king forever. In Jesus, God the Son took on human flesh, came with all divine power to vanquish sin, death, and Satan, and all that harasses mankind, here illustrated by him walking on the sea and rebuking the sea. Is this idea, theologically, that Paul seeks to describe for us in Romans 8, verse 35? He says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What is he saying? All those forces of chaos, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, all of that is what we are facing. But what? It will not separate us from the love of Christ. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Well, in what way are we conquerors? And that we'll never experience them? No. He says, for I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the sense in which we're conquerors. Because no matter what we experience in this life, when we feel like the waves are coming, they're about to overwhelm us, and we get to that place of absolute, utter despair, what can the believer be assured of? I belong to Jesus. He loves me. Nothing I face in this world can separate me from Him. And you say, well, that's some small consolation. Is it? There's a new heavens and a new earth and a new creation in which perfection dwells, where the agents of chaos have no place, and you and I have a place reserved in that new creation. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, violence. Again, all the agents of chaos. We are more than conquerors over them because we're united with Christ. Paul says, even death. Does that mean that those who belong to Jesus will never face difficulty? We've already covered that. No. What it means is that we can face the difficulties of life with the absolute confidence that God is with us, that he loves us, and that his loving purposes stand behind everything that we experience. And if we find ourselves even at the end of our lives we can have the absolute confidence that the one who conquered death through his death on the cross and then rose again has also provided resurrection for us. The point in Romans 8 is that for the Christian, the assurance that God loves us in Christ should enable us to face those difficulties in this life. 
There's no promise that we won't face persecution or famine or danger or add on whatever other agent of chaos you would like. The promise is that through them, we can have the confidence that none of it can separate us from him. That's the ultimate comfort. All Christians with Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And now you might kind of feel like stuck between two things here because you're thinking, well, that's all well and good, but what about this life? I mean, I want to have health. I want to have happiness. I want to have prosperity. I want all that in this life. And that's fine and good, and God does bless His people, and God uh, does bring earthly joy and all this stuff. But ultimately, that's not what it's about for believers. If God takes everything away, God takes your finances, and God takes your family, and God uh, takes our health, even removing everything that we cherish in this life, ultimately the believer can still have joy because death has no sting. Because a perfect creation awaits us where the agents of chaos have no influence whatsoever. The fact is Jesus is recreating Eden in a new heaven, in a new earth, in which all believers will have a part. That's a rock-solid assurance that enables us to handle the difficulties of this life, knowing that this life is only temporary. Sin, death, and Satan have already been vanquished by he who controls the deep. So we say, why hasn't God defeated Satan in sin, in death? And I say, well, he has. Well, it's just, at this point, it's just a matter of timing. It's a matter of time until we experience the full bounty of that victory in a new heavens and a new earth. Now, as we close here, I want you to look at Revelation 21, and let's look at how God describes that new heavens and new earth. He says in Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the product of all of Jesus' redemptive work, all that Christ came to to accomplish. All of creation now has been gathered under his feet. Uh, He has made all things new uh, through his uh, redemptive plan. And so now he ushers in a new heaven and a new earth. And it says, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. What does it say? And the sea was no more. And the sea was no more. There's no place for the agents of chaos. There's no place for that dark abyss. There's no place for suffering and turmoil. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burned with sulfur, which is the second death. So what do we find? New heavens, new earth, no sea. No ocean, no agents of chaos. Water has been subdued. In verse 6, though, Jesus says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. There's water. 
but it's life-giving water. So when our health fails, our lives otherwise come to an end, we are still more than conquerors. Death holds no power. It has no sting. Why? Because we belong to Christ. Reserved for us is a new creation in which there is no sea, no deep, no abyss, no raging waters, no threat of drowning under the trials, anxieties, or turmoils of this life will forever dwell in God's presence fully accepted by Him. The promise of that future is what enables us to handle this life now. So Jesus walked on water in John 6, rebuked the waves in Mark 4, because He is God the Son in the flesh because he came with divine power over sin, death, and Satan in every agent of chaos. Jesus came with power and authority over everything that renders men harassed and helpless. But even now, full and final victory over those things will not be experienced by us. Yes, we have internal joy, sure, that can sustain us as we hold on to the promises of the future that awaits us. Yet, we still suffer in this life. However, As we consider Jesus standing upon the sea, we're to be reminded that all human suffering is under his feet. Through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, he has secured a new creation for all who belong to him. And so the day is coming for all of his followers when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things will have passed away. So although ultimate deliverance may be yet future, we can have a confidence that all has been overcome by Christ. The worst that the world can do to us or that sin or suffering can do to us is simply hasten the day upon which we enter the new creation where we will finally and forever be with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Help us to learn these lessons Lord, you are so gracious to us. You bless us in this life. You uh, have provided for us so that we can experience joy and safety and satisfaction and fulfillment. Given us families and uh, we have the joy of relationships uh, and so on. Um, You certainly have, have provided for us that way in this life and we have a measure of that joy here. But help us as believers to adopt the biblical worldview, understanding that as much as by your mercy and grace you've enabled us to experience joy in this life, ultimately for the believer, it's the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth that is a place of joy and absolute fulfillment and satisfaction. So I pray the reality of the coming new creation in which the sea is no more, the agents of chaos have no effect. I pray that that confidence and that hope would steal our resolve and enable us to handle the suffering of this life, understanding that something else waits, awaits us on the other side. There are some who may be experiencing sickness, who may be contemplating their own mortality, and as they experience those reflections, as they look inwardly and as they think about uh, the temporary and fleeting nature of this life. As believers, I pray that you would just imbue them with hope. Steal their faith. Help them to think about and to be assured of the new creation that awaits them. 
And I pray that you will enable them then to handle the trials of this life as they look forward to that future. For those here this morning who maybe their life isn't described well through the sermon because they haven't experienced this type of turmoil, I pray that they take to heart these biblical truths, biblical realities, and they store them up so that when trouble does come, they'll be ready and equipped to understand that it's not something strange, uh, but it's something that you have told us and warned us will happen and uh, help them to be able to answer those trials with faith. And then, Lord, we pray for those this morning who may not be Christians at all. For these, there is no purpose or meaning to their suffering. They feel as if there's no purpose or meaning to their suffering. Life is difficult and just seems one thing after another and there's no rhyme or reason to it. Well, for these, I pray that you would help them to see their need for Jesus. That though life, life's problems may not be entirely removed, the ability to handle life's turmoil with an internal peace and joy is possible through Jesus. So help these to understand their need for Jesus, his sacrificial death, his substitutionary death for their sin on the cross. And I pray that these would be saved and that you would give them that eternal hope as well. Lord, we thank you for this. Uh, Help us to make application of it. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.